Morning. Starting to feel like Christmas really now because Star Wars is out. You know, whatever the big Christmas blockbuster is, then it's like really Christmas season. So who's seen, who's seen Star Wars? Raise your hand. Anybody? All right. Only a few. Man, you guys got to pick up your game. I haven't seen it either, but Chris was just telling me he's gone to see it, and he said it's a, it's a one to go back to even, yeah? So he's going to take his son, and it got me thinking, you know, I'm, I'm starting to reach that point in my life where I feel like I'm really in the sweet spot with my kids. Um, they like being with me. They can do stuff. You know, when you first have your kids, they're born, and uh, you want to th- play catch or something, you know, if you've ever tried to play catch with a newborn, it's not really engaging or fun at all, uh, but like my kids are three, six, and eight, and my three-year-old's a little whiny sometimes, but my six-year-old and eight-year-old, you know, they can like play and they can do stuff. We've started playing Catan together, which is my favorite board game, and they annoy me with how much they want to do it, which is just great, and um, you know, I'm in that sweet spot where they like being with me, they can do stuff, and they don't hate me yet. So that's coming, I'm sure, but I'm not there yet. But Chris was just telling me he was going to take his son Caleb to Star Wars, and so I've got that little, that's a sweeter spot than where I'm at right now, because my wife says that's too much for my kids at this point. Uh, I'm not a good judge of that stuff, to be quite honest, but... Whatever your holiday season is, I hope you're enjoying it. Uh, We are in the third week of a series entitled Light, in which we are looking at how Christ is the light of the world and how that transforms our lives. In week one, we looked at how Christ, being the light of the world, gives us hope for our future. Last week, we looked at how Christ, being the light of the world, gives us life or salvation. Uh, And today, we are looking at how Christ is the light of the world and how him being the light of the world brings us guidance for our lives. You know, this series really, as most of my best content, uh, this series really was born out of discussions I had with my wife. You know, we would talk about things, and we would talk about darkness and light, and there was this day where we were talking about what I should preach on for Christmas. It was, I don't know, it was probably two, three months ago or something, and we both had this idea of light on, uh, on our minds, and so we knew that that kind of was what we should do. If I agree with Sarah, I figure I might as well just go with that route, because... Doesn't happen all that often, yeah? So we kind of started, and the verse that really stirred our imagination as a couple as we were thinking and processing through this series was really John 1.5. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness is not understood or overcome it. No matter how dark our world seems to be, the promise of Christianity and the promise of Jesus being born 2,000 years ago, God becoming flesh is the promise that though the world is dark, the darkness cannot overcome it. And we see darkness all the time. The darkness of poverty and the darkness of death and the darkness of relational dysfunction. And we could just go on and on, but I don't want to depress you or myself. But the hope of Christianity is no matter how dark things become, the darkness cannot overcome it. And that gives us hope for our future, as we saw in week one. It gives us salvation itself in the presence of Jesus. But it also gives us guidance for our very lives as we go on day after day. Jesus said something really interesting in John chapter 8, verse 12. He said, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And the imagery really here is, you know, Every so often, maybe you're walking around in your house, and you probably know that place pretty well, and I've gotten to know the church pretty well, but you know, at night, sometimes I'm here when it's dark, and there's no lights on at all, and you stumble around, you know, and you're just hoping you don't run into a table, so I just walk really slow, you know, and I'm taking like baby steps. 
But the, the imagery here in John 8, 12 is whoever has Christ doesn't stumble around as though they're in the dark or blind, but they have the light of life, which is guiding them in what they are to do and say and in every area of their life. And so the question this morning, which I really would like to draw our attention around is, how should I live my life? I think that's a question that most of us process through and are working through. How should I live my life? How am I to know what I'm to do? Should I go live here or should I go live there? Should I take this job or that job? Should I buy this house or that house, that car, this car, this school or that school? Um, How should I live my life? What course of action is going to bring me the most joy, satisfaction, and blessing, right? Because I don't think any of us make our decisions, and that may seem a little selfish, but for those of you out there who think it does, I don't think anybody really resonates with what course of action will bring me the most discomfort, pain, and uh, unhappiness. We're all kind of looking to pursue a course of action that will bring us joy, that will bring us satisfaction, that will bring us happiness. The really great thing about Christianity is the way of following God brings us the greatest course of joy and satisfaction. But the terrible lie in our world is that other things can bring that satisfaction. But if you've ever gone down those roads, you will know that sometimes those roads lead to temporary joy, and it really can depend on how long that lasts. But the promise of Christianity, the promise that God holds out to us, is that if we uh, orient our life around Jesus, and we follow the guidance that the light of life, the light of this world promises that we will find satisfaction for our souls. And so I want to draw your attention to a text of Scripture. We're just going to look at one this morning mainly. It's found in Isaiah chapter 58, verses 1 through 14. You can find it on the blue Bibles in front of you on page 604. And uh, we are going to look at this whole chapter, Isaiah 58, 1 through 14. And I just want to orient your thinking around this passage of Scripture and how it begins to shape the way we think about how God guides our life. And I was thinking about it as I was preparing this. You know, this passage of Scripture was written by a prophet. He lived 2,700 years ago. And here we are, 2,700 years later, opening this blue book. And there's tons of, there's tons of Bibles, so your, your Bible may be a different color. That doesn't matter. But we are opening up this little passage of Scripture written to a people in a completely different context to us. And yet, you will see in just a moment this, this little uh, oracle or message from the prophet speaks incredibly into our lives and how we look for guidance, joy, and satisfaction. And so I'm just going to go ahead and read it, and you can follow along as I do. And I just want to point out a couple things, and then we'll go home, and we'll enjoy whatever uh, you know, dark weather we have outside. Yeah? It was like dusk when we came in this morning. All right. Isaiah 58, verse 1. Shout it aloud, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. A lot of people, times people think it's not great to have your sin or your rebellion diagnosed, but as you'll see, Isaiah says, shout it out like a trumpet. He's almost, it's almost as if he's saying, the acknowledgement of your sin will bring joy, which is so counterintuitive and yet so true. Because, you know, when we don't acknowledge our sin, we just continue in it. 
and the pathway of sin is always destruction. So the prophet says, shout it out like a trumpet. Shout out your rebellion. Shout out your sin. Verse 2, for day after day, they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions, and they seem eager for God to come near them. They say, why have we fasted, and you have not seen? Why have we humbled ourselves, and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please. You exploit your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard from on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? A day for people to, only a day for people to humble themselves? And here, you might think of humility as a good thing, but here he's speaking of it as a time for them to uh, abstain from food and to humble themselves by not partaking of food. Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed, the posture of prayer, and for lying in sackcloth and ashes, this concept of self-denial through religious practice? Is that what you call a fast, you know? Lying and self-prostration in the posture of prayer and denying yourself food. Is that what you call a fast? Is that what you think is a day that is acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting that I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? To see, when you see a naked person, to clothe them and to not turn away from your own flesh and your own blood. Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and with malicious talk. And if you spend yourself in behalf of the hungry, and if you satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called the repairer of the broken walls, the restorer of the streets with dwellings. If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's day honorable, and if you honor it by not doing your own way and not doing as you please or by speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord and I will cause you to ride in triumph on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Isn't it beautiful? It's just beautiful. There's three things I want you to see and it's all about guidance. I first want you to see uh, how we cannot be guided by the Lord. And the text is explicit. I want you to see from this text how you can receive guidance from God. And then lastly, I want you to see 
what God's guidance looks like, what it brings to you. And there's one thing I think most of us hope it'll bring and it doesn't bring, and we'll talk about that in a bit. But if you receive those other five blessings that we're going to see what it does bring God's guidance, you'll notice that 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 other thing isn't that big of a deal. So first, what pathway will not lead to God's guidance being revealed in your life? And the answer may seem a little funny, but the answer is clear in the text, and it is the light of God's guidance is not revealed through religious observance. We see this really beginning in verse 3. And here the context is obviously fasting the abstaining of food. At the heart of religious observance, and it's like this in every religion, and it can be like this in Christianity as well, and it's not something that we can see on the outside. It's only something we can know on the inside. For no one really knows what your motivation is when you do it. And so that's kind of the neat thing about Christianity. Sometimes we get accused of being judgmental, but the truth is we can't really tell how godly a person may or may not be. That is a personal thing between them and the Lord and only their motivation behind what they do and their actions um, can determine whether they are. Now, there's some actions that we know aren't very good. You know, if I pushed you over and like kicked you in the ribs, broke it, you know, I'm probably not a real godly guy, yes? But we all sit in these gray chairs and we all look a lot alike, you know? Some of us wear different clothes, some of us wear other clothes, but we really don't know, like that doesn't tell us anything about godliness, yes? The text is saying it's all about our heart motivation. But God's guidance is not revealed to us through religious observance. And at the heart of religious observance is really a desire, isn't it? It's a desire to manipulate and control God in what he does. And of course, this is a very attractive prospect, a very attractive prospect. I think this is why people join so many cults and and, and various things and do such wild things. Uh, You know, some some religions believe they like use those cat and nine tails and they flail themselves and they're willing to do it. Why are they willing to do it? Because they believe if they do this in some way, it'll show their earnestness and God will then grant their requests. It's really a selfish thing. In some religions, they may fast for seven days or, you know, do whatever they're going to do. Fast for a period of time. And why do they do it? So they can show God they're serious and God may do something for them. But what Isaiah is saying here is that no matter what you do, religious observance will not bring about clarity in understanding God's will. We must ask ourselves, what is really going on here? Why are they fasting? And we get a hint in the text in verse 2, don't we? It says, for day after day, they seek me out. And from here, we think that's really great. And it says, they seem eager to know my ways. And at the end of verse 2, they seem eager for God to come near them. But yet Isaiah, is in, in this language, he's even giving us as the readers a hint into the fact that the audience really doesn't seek to know God's ways. And they really don't seek to understand God and come near to him. They seem to. And the seeming to is a result of their piety. It's a result of their outward expression of their religion that they want everybody else to see 
And they believed that if they engage in it, that God would bend to their will and he would do what they want. Now we know that Isaiah is correct when he says this because in verse 3, he puts in, he, he retells their thoughts and their words. And he says, they say, why have we fasted and you have not seen? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? And here, the idea is not really about seeing or notice, for, for they know as well as we do that God notices everything. If my child comes to me and I say, you know, clean your room and I'll give you your allowance, they're going to come to me and they're going to say, Dad, look, my room is clean. And if I say, oh, I do, I see, very good. They don't mean I'm glad that you saw that the room is clean. They mean give me $5, yes? And that is exactly what's going on right here. The idea is, why have you not seen? He sees. He's not responding in the way that you wish he would respond. And implicit in this kind of language is an entitlement, isn't it? I have humbled myself. I have fasted. Did you see them? They went to that awesome restaurant. I didn't go to that restaurant. I think I deserve a little something on the side because I didn't eat that steak and they did, yes? But God is saying, religious observance never brings you closer on its own to knowing the will of God. Now, if the careful reader was to go through this text and they were to see in verse 13 that Isaiah the prophet is not against religious observance, In fact, when he is helping them understand how they will be guided by the Lord, in verse 13, he talks about Sabbath. And he talks about if you keep the Sabbath and you honor it, then the Lord, and keep the days, uh, the Lord's holy day honorable, then you will find joy in the Lord. But Sabbath itself is a religious observance. What is the difference then here in this context between fasting and Sabbath? And we know that God does not see Sabbath as anything especially um, significant forever and ever. And we know that there are times that we can misuse the Sabbath for if any cursory reading of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, the accounts of the Gospels where Jesus was himself teaching and on earth doing miracles, we see that in all those things, the main uh, problem that the Pharisees and Jesus have is all about Sabbath keeping. And he talks to them all the time about Sabbath keeping and says, you know, God is a God of, uh, of good and not just a God of ritual, of Sabbath. But here in this context, Isaiah is saying that the Sabbath is good and fasting is bad. But what he is not, that is not what he means. Isaiah and Jesus are not in contradiction. What is going on and what Isaiah is diagnosing is entirely has to do with the heart motivation. In this context, fasting was seen as something that they gave up to bend God's will to their own, and Sabbath-keeping was seen as an act of faith in which they stop working and doing something to further their own cause so that they can focus on God. In the New Testament, in the Gospels, where Jesus condemns Sabbath in the lives of the Pharisees, he said they used it in the same way that Isaiah's audience was using fasting as a religious observance to bend God's will to theirs in an effort to control him. That is the principle. And so what Isaiah wants us to get is that we cannot ever 
understand God's will simply through religious observance. But the text does not leave us there and tell us that we can't get there that way. It tells us how we do get there, doesn't it? The text tells us while we cannot get the light of God's guidance through religious observance, he says we can get it through righteous behavior. He says the light of God's guidance is revealed through righteous behavior. Specifically, we know that Isaiah here is talking about obeying the commands of God. And even more specifically, he is, uh, he is relating these to the way we treat other people. Obeying the commands of God as it relates to the way that we treat other people. Notice with me in the text, uh, in verse 2, it says in the middle, as if they were a nation that does what is right and is not forsaken the demands of its God. The text continues then at the end of verse 3, and it says, yet on the day of your fasting, and I'm just going to read these so that you can hear the impact of them again. Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please. You exploit all of your workers. Your fasting results in quarreling and strife. You're striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect to be heard. There's the negative end, but, uh, but the prophet tells us what kind of fast God does deserve. Not the kind that results in more strife and quarreling, but in verse 6, the kind of fasting that loosens the chains of injustice. The kind that sets the oppressed free. Verse 7, the kind where we fast so not so that we bend God's will, but so that we have more food to share. The kind of fast where we spend less money on clothes, not so that we bend God's will to our nature, but so that we have money to clothe those who have no clothes. Sin isn't just sin because God tells us to do something that we don't do. You know, God's not up in heaven saying, do 10 jumping jacks, and if you don't, lightning bolt. Sin is sin because it hurts other people. Why is it a sin to be greedy? Because your lack of generosity hurts other people. Why is it a sin to gossip? Because when you say bad things about other people, it hurts the reputation of other people. And we could go and we could list every sin like this. Why is it a sin to do this? Because it hurts other people. And so God is saying, you don't need to fast and do it to bend your, my will to yours. That's not within the realm of your control. I long for the kind of fasting that transforms your heart so that it makes you a more loving and just person. I long for the kind of frugality in your finances that leads to more generosity in helping the needy. I long for the kind of fasting in which you take time and you don't do it doing something that you want to do, and you use it to help someone else. I do not long or love the kind of fasting or the kind of religious observance in which you believe because you do it, you are owed something. That is ugly. And we see this all the time in Christianity. One of the most common examples I've seen is there's a little passage in Matthew uh, chapter 18. And in this little passage, Jesus talks about how we can restore conflict with one another. And he talks about, you know, if you have a problem with someone else, you should go to them and talk it through. That's what every one of us would like. You know, if, if you don't like me and you think my shirt's ugly, just keep it to yourself, you know. But if you don't like me because you think I've done something mean to you, like come to me and 
Tell me why and see if I'll make it right. And we all long for that. That's why Jesus says we long to be treated as adults and to have people interact with us and assume the best. But Jesus goes on and says, you know, if, if that doesn't work, take another person and try to restore that relationship. Not to hurt them, but to, to restore it. And Jesus says, if that doesn't work, take them before the congregation in an effort to bring them back. But I've seen Matthew 18 used in all kinds of contexts with people who are upset at other people and use it vengefully to make them suffer for the wrong that they've done to them. And while they may fulfill the very words of the law of what Jesus said, you know, they went to one, they went to two, and they went to the congregation, the heart of Matthew 18 is not how many people you take before wherever your discussions are going to be held. The point of the conversation is restoration, grace, and love. Yes. Yes, it is. And so what Jesus is, or what Isaiah the prophet is saying is that the light of God's guidance is revealed as we love what God loves and we live as God lives. I've met so many people who come to me and say, Pastor, I want to know what I, what I should do. And my buddy Mike, uh, he's a pastor in New York City. He has one of the best stories I've ever heard of this. And it's safer to use stories from people that I didn't meet and didn't know, yeah? And so... He told me a story once about a couple, and they came in, and they, they were saying, Pastor, you know, we just really want God's will for our lives. And he said, okay, well, wh- where are you struggling, you know? And like, well, we don't know where to go, and, you know, we're not sure what we should do, and we want God to bless our relationship. And he's like, all right, well, are you seeking the Lord through purity, you know? And that's always kind of an uncomfortable subject, you know? I don't go around doing that all the time. But I'm a pastor, you know. If you, we, we, I do not feel like I have been in commissioned by God to be like the moral sex police or anything. But like if you're asking me about God's guidance in your relationship and you knowingly are pursuing impurity, like you can't expect that you are going to be, have the, God, the will of God revealed. Yes? In Matthew 5, verse 8, Jesus even in the Beatitudes says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And so there's like this connection between purity and, uh, and our vision to understand and to follow God's will. And I think it's, it doesn't just come to purity. It comes to every, every type of thing that where we knowingly realize we are in sin. And, and those cannot be in big and small ways. What would it look if we, like if we believed it was really true and we followed God in trust? And when we know that we are not, we just kind of know that it's going to be a little harder to see God's guidance. Now, I grew up in, you know, the Baptist church, and, you know, we sometimes are joked about as the frozen chosen, and I'm not really emotional type of guy, and so I've never heard God speak to me audibly. To be honest, I wouldn't mind if he did. It'd be awesome. Who wouldn't want to hear God unless he was saying bad things? You know, that would freak you out. But who wouldn't want to have this experience where you hear directly from God? But in my experience, and if, if you've had that, you can come and talk with me and I may or may not understand. But let's get the simple things right where we ask ourselves on a regular basis, am I following God? What I know. Do I have areas in my life where I know they're wrong, but they'd be hard to stop. And so I'm not willing to. And if that's where you're at, no matter what the, the area is, you're just going to have a hard time 
seeing God's will. If you are walking in known rebellion against God, because it's more difficult to go the other way. It's difficult to stop eating cheeseburgers too, but the end result is a heart attack, right? God's will is revealed to us as we follow him in righteous behavior. But there's kind of like a tension here, isn't it? All true righteous behavior is a response of faith. And I think this can be so confusing to so many, and it's confusing to me at times. Because on the one hand, God is calling us towards holiness and righteousness. And on the other hand, we are accepted before God, not based on anything that we have done, you know? Salvation is a gift of God, and it's not of works, lest no one can boast, Paul says. So on the one hand, we have the unmerited favor and the grace of God that accepts us no matter what. And on the other hand, a response of that type of trust, of placing our trust in Jesus to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, will, without question, result in righteousness, in action. And so, if you're on anywhere on either side, it can look kind of ugly, can it? If you're on the one side and you follow God altogether through righteous behavior and you believe because I do what is right and because I do the right religious observances, therefore God should do what I want. You'll always kind of live a miserable, bitter, and judgmental existence. But on the other hand, if you're the kind of person who says, God gave it all to me for for grace and now I can do whatever the heck I want, you're always going to live a miserable, sinful existence. And so Isaiah, Paul, Jesus, James, they're all calling us to understand this like narrow way where we understand that we are worse off than we could possibly think and we are accepted and more loved than we could ever dare hope because of what Jesus has done for us. This narrow way where we understand that it's not what we do that brings acceptance to God, but it's what we do that shows that we've been accepted by God. And God says, when we have this kind of life, God's will will start to be revealed to us. Look, he says in verse 8, after you've done all of this, then your light, God's light, will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. So what does this look like? What does the light of God's guidance bring? Well, it brings incredible blessings. But before I tell you what it does bring, I want to tell you what it doesn't bring. The light of God's guidance never brings your ability to control God. God is in control, and a proper response to God is not manipulation through righteous behavior or religious observance. The proper response to God is trust. And while the light of God's guidance doesn't bring control, it brings incredible blessings that Make your desire for control void. You don't need it. If you truly understand the blessings that God's light brings. And I'm just going to quickly point them out to you. They're beautiful and they're explicit in our text. The first is understanding. Look at the text with me in verse 2. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways. 
That's their motivation. They seem eager. But then look with me as uh, the text continues. And they have not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask for just decisions and they seem eager for God to come near them. The first thing that God's guidance brings, it's a desire that they have is to understand God's ways. But the first thing it does is as we start to follow God in holiness, in righteousness, in trust, we will start to understand what he's doing and why he's doing it a little bit more. Or we at least make peace with it. There's all kinds of things in this world that I don't completely understand. There's things I certainly wish were different. But as I respond to God in trust versus anger or a lack of trust, I start to understand what he's doing and why just a little bit more. And I start to yearn for another day when Christ will return. The second thing we see that God's light brings, and this is a major theme of light, is it brings visibility. Look at the text with me in verse 10, uh, the second half of the verse. Then your light will rise in the darkness. Then your night will become like the noonday. This is a major theme of light, just the ability to see, visibility. If you're walking around in a dark place, it's hard to see. If you're driving around in a fog, Uh, that is impenetrable, it's hard to see. When you have the light of God's guidance, your decisions become a little bit more clear. Thinking back of that couple who were saying to the pastor they wanted to seek God's guidance, but yet were sleeping together outside of marriage, their vision is fogged. The dark is making it a little harder to see. And I don't know everything they should do, you know, I talked about in the beginning of my sermon, you know, what should I do? Which car should I buy? Which house should I go, you know, get? Which school should I go to? You know, I sometimes think God's will is not always revealed to us like that in those kind of decisions. I think it's revealed to us in ways that like, what would radical trust look like in God? And then do it. Sometimes that can be uh, FLCC or it can be MCC. Man, I'm so geographically understanding, yes? Just, you can do God's will both places. <laughs> but when you're outside of God's will and righteous behavior, like uh, neither of them look like good options. Nothing does. The third blessing God's will bring, or God's guidance brings is intimacy. Intimacy. Right from the very beginning, when the first man and woman sinned, what was the first thing they did? They hid. They hid from the presence of God. In Genesis chapter 3. And I've noticed it over and over again with my boys. When they do something I don't like, they do not rush to me, they run away from me. And so, intimacy. Do you yearn to have a vision for God? And I think of this all the time. I read verse 2 and I look at that. They seem to, they seem to. And that's, that, that, that appears in our text over and over. And I think, man, what are the ways that I only seem to follow and want God? And it doesn't matter if I fool you. It really doesn't. Like, if you think I'm the most awesome, godly man, I don't think that's necessarily my vibe. But, you know, if you think that, it doesn't really matter if you think that because what's true is my relationship that I have personally with God. And I know what I'm really like. You really don't. I don't really know what you're like. I don't know what you think about when you put your head on the pillow I don't know the innermost heart desires that you have. 
I know what mine are and God knows what mine are and I can try to hide them from him, but it's impossible and will never result in my joy and it will never bring me greater intimacy with God. And so I yearn for that, for my own selfish desire to know God in a more personal way, not so that you think I'm awesome. Although that would be a nice side benefit, yeah? Fourth, the light of God's guidance brings satisfaction. It brings joy. We see this in verse 11. You will be satisfied. And lastly, the light of God's guidance brings restoration. This is one of my favorites. It's almost as if as God's people live in the light of God's guidance, the only inevitable result is that the world would start to be transformed and it'd look more like the world that God wants it to look like. But we see it explicitly in our text in verse 12. As we experience the light of God's guidance, your people will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will repair the broken walls. They will be the restorer of dwellings. As we experience God's guidance, we start to fulfill the words of the Lord's Prayer and the world on earth starts to look a little bit more like the world should look like in heaven. I want to close with just a a familiar passage, probably to many of you. And I want you to hear this passage again. They're the words of Jesus in light of what you've just heard from Isaiah chapter 58, where Jesus says that you are the light of the world, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Now, people do not take a lamp and its light and put it under a bowl. The oxygen, lack of oxygen would put out the light, but that's not what he's talking about. Instead, they put it on a stand And that light brings light to everyone in the house. Jesus tells us in the same way, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. The kind of faith that God our Father loves and wants us to have is a faith of radical trust that is visible to all, that moves people towards Jesus. Paul says something interesting in Galatians chapter 5. He says, The fruit of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And you ever remember the words he says next? Against such there is no law. Everybody longs for it. This Christmas season, as we orient our hearts around all kinds of awesome stuff, family, friends, food, gifts, uh, food, you know, Star Wars, As we orient our lives around all kinds of awesome stuff, let us remember that this is just a a time in the year to remind us that our ultimate life revolves around Jesus, who became the light of the world by the literal Son of God, who was God in the heavens, becoming God in the flesh, who lived amongst us for 33 years, who died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead, proving it is true. Let us ask ourselves this Christmas season, what would my life look like if I was guided by the light of Christ and I lived in radical response to the grace that was given me in trust and faith? And let us take that light to the world. Let me pray for you. Father, we are so grateful for your word. We are so grateful for you preserving it. And we ask that you would open our eyes so that we might continue to understand your ways we ask even more that you would do that thing that only you can do and you would empower us to live it out. 
so that we might experience the joy of knowing and following Jesus and so that others might see the light. We pray all this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins. Amen.